Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is Nathan Thompson, who's an associate professor of ag economics here at Purdue, and Michael Langemeyer, who's the associate director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. On the podcast today, we're going to review some of the latest information from USDA's World Ag Supply and Demand Report, which was released on January 12th, along with updates on crop basis, as well as some farm management information from Dr. Langemar. So a reminder for our listeners, you can download a set of the charts that accompany this podcast at the center's website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. So let's just kind of review some of the highlights from the report that came out yesterday, looking at the corn balance sheet. USDA did make some changes and the market noticed almost immediately. So if you look at area harvested, they reduced that from 80.8 million acres in 2022 of corn to 79.2 million acres. So a reduction of about 1.6 million acres. At the same time, they bumped the yield estimate up by about a bushel. They went from 172.3 bushels per acre to a yield estimate of 173.3. And this makes the final yield estimate for the 22 crops. So that's um, where we're going to be for a while going forward, I think, with respect to that 22 yield. And then uh, if you look at where we wound up with production, that pulled the production number back from 13.93 billion bushels in 22 to 13.73 billion bushels. So a reduction of 200 million bushels in production. Um, Accompanying that was obviously the same reduction in supply that took place. And then if you look at the usage categories, there were some modest changes. The feed usage category came back, I think, 25 million bushels compared to where they were at in December. Um, The food, seed, and industrial category, which includes ethanol, uh, reduced, I think, about 10 million bushels, with ethanol itself unchanged, uh, still holding that at 5.275 billion bushels. And then they did pull back on the exports, uh, and we'll talk more about exports here in in a minute, but uh, the exports, they reduced their forecast by 150 million bushels. Last month, they were at 2.075 billion bushels. This month, 1.925. That leaves the ending stock slightly smaller than the forecast coming out of the December report. In December, they were forecasting a carryout at the end of the 22 marketing year into the 23 harvest of 1.257 billion bushels. That pulls it back to 1.242. And then, you know, that's a reduction, I guess, of about 15 million bushels. And then if you look at the price forecast, uh, still at 670, so no change in the price forecast for the uh, marketing year average. And if you look at what took place yesterday following the report, the market interpreted this report a little more positively than you might have expected seeing that small change in the ending stocks number. The market was really focused on that reduction in production that took place, that 200 million bushels, and maybe not quite so focused on the change in the usage categories uh, that were accompanying that. So, you know, for me, looking at where the corn market is headed here the next few months, I think it really hinges pretty heavily on what takes place with respect to exports. And so thinking about the export forecast of roughly 1.93 billion bushels, that's down significantly compared to last year. Last year, we were at 2.47. Two years ago, we were at 2.75. It's actually the second lowest export forecast of the last six years. The only one that was lower in the last six years was 2019, which was came in at 1.78. So that's a pretty weak export forecast. And you know, I think if you think about what's taken place and look at what's taken place so far this year, you can understand why USDA pulled the numbers back. Um, if you look at the data from the Foreign Ag Service with respect to the weekly exports, the shipments that have actually taken place, they are down substantially compared to last year. Uh, corn export shipments down, I think, 34% so far this marketing year compared to the same period uh, last year. Um, and exports to China actually a little bit stronger uh, so far than this time last year, but not enough to make up for the the overall reduction taking place. And then when you look at sales, the commitments, which include uh, not only the uh, corn that's been exported, the actual shipments that have taken place, but also the sales for corn that has not yet been shipped, uh, it's down even more dramatically. I think export commitments uh, down 47% so far this year compared to a year ago. And when you look at this number, 
um, the export commitments going to China are down significantly as well. But it's not just China. Um, I think if you look at the numbers last year at this time, China had committed to doing uh, or taking about 486 million bushels, so almost 500 million. This year, they've committed to about 152 million. Uh, but if you look at the total commitments, last year at this time, we had 1.6 billion bushels on the books. This year, we've only got 866 million bushels. So um, the export market for corn has been shockingly weak. I'm going I'm to say shockingly because I think there was an expectation that we would see some soft exports this year compared to last year. But this has been unusual. What do you think, Nathan, looking at these charts? Yeah, I mean, it certainly has. I mean, and we're, we're feeling those impacts uh, on the price side. Yeah, and I think yeah, we're going to talk more about basis later, but it's a different story on soybeans, right? It is. That's right. And it's being reflected in the basis numbers. Um, if you look at exports as a percentage of USDA's forecast, those numbers don't look too bad. We came in at roughly 21% so far of weekly exports relative to USDA's forecast. That compares to 25% last year, 24% two years ago, 21% back in 19. So at first glance, that, that makes it look like we're you know, on track, I suppose. But that really understates the shortfall because what's taken place is USDA has been pulling back on these export numbers throughout the marketing year. The forecast, uh, the first forecast for the 2022 crop exports was issued back in May. And at that point, up through July, USDA was anticipating corn exports of 2.4 billion bushels. But they've been ratcheting those down month by month. And now this month's estimate at 1.925. So we're down... I think 475 million bushels compared to that July forecast. That's a big change in a short span of time. It just indicates how much of a surprise this has been with respect to how weak these exports have turned out to be. And if you look at what's taken place, uh, the export numbers are worse for the U.S. than they are for the major competitors. The major competitors in the export channels for corn are, of course, are Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Ukraine, and Russia. And USDA's projection for those major competitors is down a little bit compared to last year as well, but the big difference is really the weak, inter weak exports coming out of the U.S. And I don't think we can point to a single factor, Michael, that maybe explains that, but clearly one factor is what's taking place with respect to the strength of the dollar. That's clearly hurting us in the export channels. But I think it's probably a little bit more than that, don't you? Yeah, it's probably the strength of the dollar, but also the relatively high price that we have in the U.S. Uh, is, is not helping any either. Yeah, so high prices and, and expressed in U.S. dollars, and then when you factor in the currency strength, that's really exacerbated that situation and I think made uh, U.S. corn exports rel relatively uncompetitive. Um, and. Unfortunately, I don't see anything on the horizon in the short run that's going to cause that to change. Do you, Michael? No. That was pretty succinct. <laughs> Our listeners were hoping for something more positive than that, I think. Um, so one of the wild cards that continues to be uh, of interest, I guess, in the, in the corn market is what's going on in the Black Sea regions, more specifically Ukraine. USDA's estimate for the 22 crop corn production is now down about 600 million bushels compared to 21. Um, they've got that 22 crop at about just a little over one point, uh, just a little over one billion bushels at 1.06. A year earlier, that uh, 21 crop was estimated at 1.658. And going forward, one of the wild cards not only is you know just how large that 22 crop was and how much of that they're going to be able to get the market, but what's going to take place here in the spring of 23 with respect to planting. Uh, and what's going to take place with respect to input availability, things like fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer in particular. So a lot of uncertainty with respect to what's going on in Ukraine, how much of that corn is going to be available. It's safe to say, if you look at the numbers, um, more corn has gotten out of the Black Sea region and into the world market than a lot of people, myself included, expected to see last spring. So that has alleviated some of the corn shortage that was discussed uh, when the invasion of Ukraine first took place, but still remains a bit of a wild card going forward. So then if you think about that USDA balance sheet, where does that leave us when you look at ending stocks as a percentage of usage, which is a good way of scaling uh, how tight corn supplies are going to be, particularly as we head toward the, towards the end of the marketing year, still hovering right around that 9% mark. I think 8.9% uh, on this month's balance sheet 
Um, you look at last year, we were at 9.2%, two years ago, 8.3%. So if you look at it historically, that's, those are pretty tight numbers. Um, you'd have to go all the way back to 2011 and 2012 to see carryover stocks that were tighter than that. In 2011, we were at 8%. 2012, we were at roughly 7%. So uh, not quite as tight as we were in that environment, but really on par with where it was in, in 2013. So uh, that suggests some continued tightness. Um, really, to me, hinges pretty heavily with respect to what's going to take place in corn prices is what ha happens with these exports. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, that's definitely the case. And one of the things very really interesting looking at that chart it is, is, is it really is similar to the trend in net farm income. It just tells us how important corn really is uh, to, to U.S. Uh, net farm income. During 14 to 19, we had relatively high stocks to use. And now uh, 2021 and 22, it's, it's much lower and, and the incomes are higher in the last three years. And as, as you look ahead, I think one of the things you have to think about is where we're going to go with respect to production this coming year. Um, we came off some pretty dry conditions in, in uh, 22. Are we going to see a rebound in yields? Yields fell below the trend line um, uh, yield expectations. Are we going to see a rebound back to trend line yields or even potentially above trend line yields? So we could see a big swing in corn prices and corn production and then correspondingly corn prices. Uh, as we head through 23. So that's something to keep in mind when we talk a little bit more about marketing strategies for the 23 crop. Um, we're, we're kind of on the, uh, the precipice here of a potential change, and I think it's important to think about that a little bit. So Nathan, you've been taking a look at what's going on with respect to forward contract bids and basis and corn. Why don't you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I just want to take a couple of minutes and think about kind of what's going on in markets. You know, compared to you know where we've been the last couple of years, things have been kind of quiet here the last several months uh, compared to the volatility we've seen recently. And so uh, let's just kind of walk through some of that. I mean, the first thing is, you know, there's a lot of folks that have been holding past first of the year to kind of defer that income uh, into 23. And so there's going to be people looking to make sales. And so the question is, okay, what is what do prices look like here over the remainder of, of this current crop marketing year? And when you look at the structure of those forward contract bids, and again, I'm just looking at, at one uh, elevator in East Central Indiana, you'd want to obviously check kind of the bids at, at your specific location. But the bids that I'm looking at are pretty flat through the remainder of the crop marketing year. And again, there's two things that are impacting those bids. One is we have very little carry in futures market um, now through, say, the summer months. Uh, and then there's just no appreciation and basis built into that bid. Uh, and so they're, they're not bidding up basis further into the crop marketing year. And so in terms of an incentive to store based on these cash bids, uh, there's really not a lot of reason unless you're kind of uh, forecasting an improvement in basis stronger than what is, is built into these forward contract bids, which very well could be the case. Uh, but where, where those bids are currently, they're well below what I have estimated as kind of implied break-evens, meaning, you know, if the current bid today is at 674, I uh, calculate both uh, an on-farm and a commercial storage scenario, and I also include opportunity cost in that uh, on holding that grain as opposed to using it to pay down uh, some sort of debt or some other uh, operating costs. And so, you know, if you're going to forego that 674 today, at least based on my calculations, you know, if you're going to store out into, say, May, you'd need to sell for at least 692 to offset uh, an on-farm storage scenario and 704 if you want to cover those commercial storage costs. And again, cash bids are in that 674, 673 range from now until, uh, you know, May or June. And so really not a lot of incentive based on the cash bids alone to be thinking about a storage scenario. If you've got grain you're looking to sell, now might be a good time to be doing that. Again, unless you're thinking about, you know, thinking about a strategy where you could uh, maybe hedge futures, uh, eliminate that risk, and think about some appreciation and basis, uh, depending on your scenario. So, Nathan, thinking about it, looking at your the bids that you've uh, collected here with mm -hmm. respect to the uh, forward cash bids, not too surprising that in a tight carryover environment that we wouldn't see much of an incentive built into the futures market, right? You wouldn't expect to see a lot of carry in a tight 
carryover environment. No, no, right. I mean, this would be a pretty typical structure given what we have going on. The thing that people are going to want to pay attention to is obviously what happens with planning as we move into the planning season, what happens with early season weather conditions. You know, any of those things are going to have big impacts on, on basis, um, say, the end of this spring, beginning of this summer as we transition from old crop to new crop. And that's where we sometimes will talk about, you know, getting these pops in basis later into those summer months. But as for now, as you're looking over kind of the immediate future, you know, we just don't see them bidding up those basis bids. We're going to wait and gather more information before we uh, kind of move those basis bids. So we normally think about seeing some seasonal strength in cash prices uh, into the spring planning season timeframe. And I'm not sure if you've looked at this recently, but, you know, if you think about that seasonal strength, how much of that typically is attributable to basis? How much of that is more associated with just strength in futures? That's a good question. Uh, I, I'm not going to put numbers on it, but they both play into that, right? And again, in an individual year, one might factor in more than the other. But both of those probably contribute a, a pretty similar weight. I wouldn't say one you know, overwhelms the other, except in an individual year where maybe uh, markets are having to, to move one or the other, you know, uh, depending on the factors at play. But uh, both of those, right, this, the, the seasonality and the futures component, and then also the, the patterns and basis, both would play into that strength. So uh, next, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the basis side. Uh, and so again, uh, things have been relatively quiet uh, on the basis side of things for you know a couple of months now. We started off the crop marketing year in you know September, October, November with pretty volatile basis. We got a lot of things going on on the basis side of things this year, mainly things going on with the Mississippi River and how that impacted uh, the ability to transport grain and how that kind of trickled back uh, through through crop markets. Uh, but that has really leveled out. We've, you know, well, we started off with weak basis because, you know, uh, we just weren't able to move grain down the river. Uh, we saw that rebound pretty strong uh, and kind of reach kind of what, what I would call typical levels, looking at historical uh, basis levels by the beginning of December. And since then, you know, basis levels have been tracking right along those historical averages. Uh, and so really, you know, not a lot of uh, uh, interesting things to say one way or the other as far as where basis is currently. And again, some of that plays into, you know, we're, we're in a kind of a wait and see kind of uh, period of time where uh, markets are going to wait and see what happens with uh, the 23 crop before basis is going to move one way or the other as we move into, say, March, April, May. And as you think about the river, that situation has sorted itself out, which is kind of what we thought would happen, right, with respect to some improving rainfall. River levels came back up. It's a lot easier to ship. Barge rates have come down, right? Yep. So. And so again, just looking at basis, uh, so on the previous uh, discussion, we were talking about um, central Indiana basis, very similar kind of pattern uh, in southwest Indiana, uh, thinking about that as a region that maybe is a little more influenced uh, by those export markets, obviously much more influenced by what happened with the Mississippi River. Uh, and so again, you know, weak basis this fall, that more than rebounded uh, and has caught up with that historical average, that historical pattern. And and is really running right along that um, uh, historical trend line in terms of where basis would be this time of year. And then if we drill in just a little more specifically, and instead of looking at southwest Indiana as a region, and we look at uh, only terminals that are on the uh, Ohio River in southern Indiana and southern Illinois, uh, again, same story. We started out with very, very weak basis, uh, given that um, the demand at those locations, they just weren't wanting to buy corn because they couldn't move it down the, the river, or they could move it, but at a much higher cost. Uh, and so that, that uh, really had an impact on basis. But that that, again, sorted itself out relatively quickly. You know, in the month of October, we had pretty, uh, I hesitate to use the word historic, but very, very weak basis relative to average. That rebounded and, again, caught up with, with the historical trend, and we see kind of basis levels really trading right around that uh, uh, historical average for what we typically see this time of year uh, along those river terminals. Yeah, the, when you look back at the basis levels in October, it's pretty clear the grain trade on the river was trying to communicate the message, don't bring us corn, right. because it was very difficult to ship. Barge rates were astronomical. Um, 
it was even difficulty book barges, right? Yeah. I mean, just all kinds of problems. So the, the trade didn't want it, and they communicated that with some extraordinarily weak basis. So then the last thing on the basis side that I just want to take a minute to talk about is what's going on in terms of ethanol plant basis. And so again, you know, we saw uh, ethanol plant basis weaken through kind of the, the harvest period and then improve in, in November, December. Again, it's kind of trading right around that historical three-year average. You know, we talked earlier, Jim, about that the last three years in terms of ethanol basis has been kind of all over the place. We've had some, some pretty strong years and we've had some weaker years. And so if anything, you know, I would say uh, where we are currently is, is right in line, depending on what years you're looking at. If you're looking at more recent history, it may be a slightly weaker given the strong ethanol plant basis we've had the last couple of years. If you looked at a longer average, it might be a little bit stronger current basis levels given, you know, if you looked at uh, what's normal, I don't know. But a longer average, you know, if, if that really pulls that that uh, historical pattern down a little bit, current levels might be slightly stronger. But either way, you know, we're talking about maybe a five or ten cent swing either way. And so really, it, it's trading pretty flat the last couple of months uh, and, and somewhat in line with what we would expect it to be this time of year. So then I just want to shift our attention, you know, away from the basis side of things and think about uh, new crop marketing opportunities. So on, on last month's webinar and podcast, we talked about kind of the changing conditions. And Jim, you've already alluded to that here uh, uh, on this recording. You know, people really need to be paying attention, I think, to what's going on in these new crop markets, um, because there there is obviously upside potential, but there is also downside risk on these prices. And when we compare what I'm going to talk about in terms of uh, current price opportunities that, that markets are giving us with what Michael's going to talk about when he talks about his estimated break-evens, you know, this is something that people really need to be careful and pay attention to. So uh, I'm just looking at a new crop opportunity using December 23 corn futures uh, from this morning, $5.98. We had a nice bump off of the report yesterday. Those prices are up uh, $0.10 cents or so. Uh, I go in to the crop basis tool, pull out an expected basis uh, for fall delivery, so October of 23, of around 25 cents under uh, those futures. That puts us at a cash price of $5.73 uh, per bushel. And so that's going to be uh, below, I believe, what Michael has as a break-even currently. Is that correct? That's below the average productivity break-even at 595. Right. Break-even uh, on average productivity, Michael has at 595. So not only is it below, it's quite a bit below that, right? And so obviously, um, you know, prices could go up, could go down. But to put some kind of quantification to that, I want to look at the, the distribution uh, tool from the farm doc team. And so if you look at, and, and so the way this works is it takes current futures prices and volatility, and it uses that to create a distribution of what the uh, price of that December 23 corn futures contract could be at expiration when we get to December, right? So kind of what's the range of potential outcomes and the probability of those outcomes uh, given what's currently happening in the market. And what we kind of, you know, tend to, to point to is, is as far as a, a useful kind of test for people to be thinking about in terms of what price outcomes might be is like a 25th and a 75th percentile. So again, if we've got current futures prices right around that $6 mark, not adjusted for basis, you know, we've got about a 25% chance that that price could go below $5. That's a one in four chance, you know, of that price moving below five. Again, you adjust that for basis. You're in that 475 range. Um, however, you know, there is upside potential, and we could talk about the factors that might influence um, uh, prices to move upward. We've got a 75, or excuse me, a 25% chance of that price going above uh, 675. And so again, uh, the the point in kind of going through that exercise is for people to be really paying attention to the 23 crop, where prices are and where their costs and where their break evens are, um, because we're already in a position where things don't look nearly as good as they've looked the last couple of years. And so really paying attention to your marketing is going to be important. Uh, much more important this year than it has the past couple of years where we could get by with kind of poor marketing and really still make money. Yeah, so a good time to remember that the point of risk management is recognizing that we can't forecast the future accurately enough to put all our eggs in one basket. Right. And given that, you need to think about whether or not you would want to start some pricing. You know, we had a little bit of a pop here with the report yesterday. Um, do you want to start some pricing if you haven't already done some pricing for the 23 crop? Recognizing that there is a risk these prices could go substantially lower. And, you know, just thinking about the scenario, Michael, 
you know, the scenario that I can think of that maybe would lead prices lower, one would be very good weather in the U.S., very strong yields in the U.S., um, good weather in South America. And then the third piece would be a weak economic environment uh, in the around the world and, and leading to some weak exports. And that could easily get us down in that $5 range or less. Fourth, and a fourth piece, if, if Ukraine can gets back up to some normal production again, that's a little bit uh, iffy perhaps at this point. But if, if, if that happens, that's that's quite a few more bushels right there. It, it You can think of your own scenarios, but there are several scenarios out there that would lead to a big enough increase in supplies to lead to some lower prices. And so uh, recognize that and recognize, you know, the other thing we've talked about quite a bit, Michael, is the fact that Going into this 23 crop, the risk is higher in the sense that you've got a lot of money invested in that crop, right? You think of it from a break-even standpoint on a per-bushel basis. The other way to think about it is just how many dollars per acre you've had to invest, right? Yeah, and I point to the ag economy barometer. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out there, and, and it, it reflects in the ag economy barometer. So sediment's not as positive as you think it might be, given that we're coming off a, a really good uh, net farm income year. And, and I think it's I think it's uncertainty related to crop prices, but also weather and input prices. You combine all of that uh, and there's there, and there's it's, there's a lot of volatility out there. All right, let's turn our attention to soybeans. The soybean side does look better than, than what we just painted with respect to corn, but there are some changes to talk about. Um, they did have a small reduction in the area harvested on uh, this report uh, in December. They were still estimating 86.6 million acres harvested. On this report, they pulled that back a little bit to 86.3 million acres. They pulled the yield back, and that was something I think a lot of people were looking for. Uh, last month, they were still at 50.2 bushels per acre. This year, or this month, they came in at 49.5 bushels per acre. So that combination did pull production back. Last month, the forecast was 4.35 billion bushels. Um, on the January report, they came in at 4.28 billion bushels. Um, so a reduction in total supplies. Um, they also pulled a little bit like corn, not as dramatically, but they did pull back the export forecast. Last month, they were still expecting uh, exports of 2.045 billion bushels. On this report, they pulled it back to 1.99 uh, billion bushels. So that reduction is not trivial, particularly when you think about the changes in those export forecasts that have taken place over the last few months. Um, on a total use basage uh, and, and looking at the carryover, a fairly modest change in, in the ending stocks. I think the ending stocks last month were forecast to be 220 million bushels going from the 22 crop season into the 23 crop harvest. Um, this month it winds up being 210, so a small change there. They did bump the marketing year average price forecast up to 1420 from $14 last month which really just reflects what's already taken place, the strength that we've seen in soybean prices, not so much a forecast as it is a reflection of what's already happened. Um, the soybean export picture is quite a bit different than what we saw for corn, really much better than, than for corn. If you look at soybean export shipments so far, um, they're close to last year's level, I think 1.09 billion bushels so far. This time last year, we were at 1.16 billion bushels. It is well below where we were back two years ago. Uh, if you look at exports to China, those so far this year have actually been a little bit larger than last year at 755 million bushels versus 736 this time last year. And then when you look at commitments, so the combination of uh, pro uh, shipments as well as sales that have been made but not shipped, the total commitments are actually a little bit larger than they were this time last year at 1.63 billion bushels. This time last year, we were at 1.56 billion bushels. Uh, sh commitments to China actually a little bit larger than last year as well at 984 versus 885. So if you think about it in total, the soybean export picture looks a lot better than what we saw on, on the corn side. Um, if you compare shipments that have taken place so far relative to USDA's forecast, uh, we're at about 55% of the forecast, and that's quite a bit different than corn, but keep in mind the reason that that takes place is because on a seasonal basis, uh, about this time of year, starting maybe in February, uh, the world's attention starts shifting to South America. And so we have a tendency to export a high percentage of the soybeans that we're going to export in the first few months of the marketing year. So that's why it's so high relative to what I said on corn. And that compares favorably to last year. Last year at this time, we were at 54%. But that really kind of hides what's going on behind the scenes because when you look at it relative to that WASD export number, you have to remember that they've been changing the export number and reducing it month by month going back to, I think, uh, the month of July. 
So in June, they were forecasting uh, 2.2 billion bushel exports. That started coming down on the July report and been drifting lower ever since. And this month, we're at 1.99. So we're down uh, roughly 230 million bushels on an export forecast uh, on this report compared to where we were back in June. And when you look at it that way, you realize the export picture for soybeans, although better than corn, still not what you'd hope to see. Uh, and as you look at the export numbers, again, uh, exports for the major competitors, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Paraguay, uh, actually expected to be up this marketing year, whereas U.S. numbers actually down. So again, uh, the U.S. is, is kind of lagging relative to what's taking place on a worldwide basis, again, uh, for a variety of reasons. But one of those is, is clearly, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Michael, the strength that we've seen in U.S. prices, as well as the currency situation, right? Yes. And I, cer I certainly think there's there's room to be more bullish on, on soybeans compared to corn. And, and we'll talk a little bit about relative profitability later. Yeah, as you look ahead to 23, that's right. So from an ending stocks projection standpoint, they're still tight. Uh, we came in a little bit below 5%. We've been hovering right around that 5% mark uh, for carryover from the 22 crop season into the 23 crop for quite some time. And again, you go back to, you know, when, when have we seen uh, a carryover tighter than that? Well, the last time we were tighter than that was 2013. We've had several years in that 2011, 2012, 2014, 15 era that were all in that roughly 5% carryover range. So a pretty tight carryover, and that's going to be supportive of soybean prices going forward. Um, but clearly, we've got some challenges ahead of us on the export side. So, Nathan, you've taken a look at the basis and some storage opportunities for soybeans. Yeah, so again, I just want to start off looking at what current forward contract bids are for soybeans. Again, just looking at one location uh, in East Central Indiana and comparing those kind of with the cost structure of storage and how do those kind of pan out. So if you look at it, again, similar to corn, current forward contract bids for, for soybeans are pretty flat moving through the remainder of the current crop marketing year. So again, right now, you could probably sell uh, soybeans, uh, at least at the location I'm looking at, for uh, $15.14. That maybe goes up a little bit, $15.19 uh, in February and March. And again, they moved down to $15.13 in uh, April and May. And again, there's a combination of things there. Not very much uh, carry in uh, soybean futures markets. And again, very little appreciation uh, and basis built into those bids. And again, if you compare that with uh, kind of a, an implied break even, right? So if you're going to forego that $15.14 today, what would you need to sell that for to cover both uh, your storage costs? Again, I'm looking at on-farm and commercial storage, as well as your opportunity costs. And so again, if you just look at one month as an example, we've got a April cash bid of $15.13, but my break even on an on-farm uh, storage scenario is $15.48, and uh, for a commercial uh, storage scenario, $15.60, which again, are quite a bit higher than where that uh, forward contract bid is. And so again, in terms of the structure of those forward contract bids, not a lot of incentive currently built in uh, to store based on where those prices are. That's kind of an understatement, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so if you, you're actually got, uh, your April bid was looks like it's actually about six cents lower than your March bid, is that right? Yeah. Um, so if you're going to store soybeans you're do, and looking at maybe on a seasonal basis, that uh, what research would suggest we typically see in that mid to late spring time frame, you're betting on a combination of stronger futures and perhaps some improvement in basis, right? right. Correct. Yeah, that would be the thing. And again, like that very well could happen, right? And we're in this kind of period where basis, and we'll talk about this in a minute, for soybeans is similar to corn, pr pretty quiet, uh, maybe a little more optimistic on the, the export markets. But that doesn't mean as we move towards, especially with, you know, the tight carryover situation, right? Any sort of production issues or if there's some sort of production issues uh, that we see in Brazil or South America, you know, we could see basis move, right? And so uh, there's certainly opportunity for that. But what this is looking at is, you know, as you look at the Ford contract bids that are being offered to you today to sell corn in April, they're just not giving you that incentive, right? right. Yeah, to sell soybeans. So thinking back on some of the research you've done, um, you know, one of the outcomes of that research that really always struck me, Nathan, was the fact that unhedged storage of soybeans, on average, and in, and in many years, I've forgotten the exact count, I think you looked at the count, um, mm -hmm. was, was profitable. 
Um, you might reiterate that because it strikes me in a tight carryover environment, this this is a year to think about that. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, we looked at several different strategies, um, storage strategies, and, and how those um, what the returns to those different strategies were. And, and what we found was the on-hedge strategy, meaning you put corn or soybeans in the bin in the fall when you harvested it, you didn't take any position on futures or basis, right? You're speculating on both of those, no, no not locking in either component of, of that cash price. Um, that on-hedged uh, or kind of speculative uh, uh, strategy performed pretty well, right? For corn, it was not very frequent. Uh, maybe, you know, I, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, three out of the last 30 years for corn, you would see that, you know, generate very high returns. These years where we have large rallies and futures. Uh, for soybeans, it was a little bit different. You saw much more frequently that that on-hedge strategy generated relatively high returns. Returns. And again, there's several factors there in terms of movements in both futures and basis, because we're talking about a strategy where neither of those things have uh, been locked in. And so again, I don't remember the exact numbers, but on soybeans, I would say, you know, it was 30, 40% of the years you saw these relatively strong 50 cent or $1 returns above the storage costs associated uh, with, with storing soybeans. And so again, I, I think you make a good point in a tight carryover year like, like this year, there's certainly upside potential potential on the future side, there's upside potential on the basis side. And so this could definitely be a year as we look, you know, towards March, April, May, where we could see a big run up uh, in, in the cash prices being offered for soybeans. Uh, but again, you know, I, anytime we talk about that research, I always like to go back to the idea that the whole point there was that is a portfolio approach, right? You're not putting all your eggs in that basket because uh, while we do have factors that would point towards higher soybean prices, we have plenty of things we could speak to that would point to lower soybean prices. And so it's not like I'm saying you need to go all in on that strategy. But again, that research, especially as you compare corn to soybeans on that on-head strategy, soybeans was definitely the crop uh, that had more potential, uh, at least historically, that the frequency of that happening, those those uh, rallies in, in, in prices and basis, um, giving us those large returns. And so certainly there are some factors this year that would point to you know that being a strategy that at least for a portion of your crop that you still have in storage that you're wanting to hold on to, you know, it, it could be something that could be favorable this year. So thinking about it just a little more, Nathan, uh, and thinking about, again, about your research and the tightness in supplies, if you're trying to decide, should I sell some corn to generate cash or should I sell some soybeans to generate cash? I agree with that. I mean, again, based on the research, just strictly thinking about, you know, the historical odds, definitely point to that. Uh, but then I would also say, as we've been talking about kind of the supply-demand situation, current situation factors would also point to that, in my opinion. And so I think both of those would, would be a strong incentive to, to do what you said, you know, favor selling uh, corn and maybe holding on to soybeans. And then I think uh, the, maybe the follow-up reminder is don't fall in love with it and hang on too long. Sure. you got to be paying attention, yeah. I mean, your research would suggest storing past uh, maybe the 1st of June or the middle of June is very risky. And particularly in a year like this, you'd probably want to be pretty cautious about that with respect to what might be taking place in acreage and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. That You really want to pay attention, and, and it, gets way, it gets very volatile as we move into the summer months. And so you'd really want to be kind of on top of those positions because it could move one direction or the other very quickly those times of year. So then uh, moving on, I want to talk just a little bit about soybean basis, uh, kind of what's been going on. So starting out, just looking at kind of central Indiana, uh, pretty similar uh, to what we saw with corn with, again, weak basis in the fall. Uh, again, going back to what was happening with the Mississippi River, that resolved itself relatively quickly. We were really back in line with kind of historical basis patterns by, you know, beginning to middle of November. And soybean basis has really been tracking right along that historical average here for the past month, two months. And so not a lot of exciting things going on there. If we look at the next slide, it, it does uh, get a little bit different. And this, I think, at least partially has to point to kind of what you mentioned, Jim, with what's going on with soybean exports and definitely a lot more optimism there, optimism there relative to what's going on with, with corn exports. And so if we look at soybean basis in southwest Indiana, again, 
week basis in the fall that recovered and really recovered even stronger than what the historical pattern would show it's bounced around a little bit here in recent weeks but i think there's definitely some evidence to say there's stronger um, basis uh, in the southwest region of indiana and again that's even more obvious when you look at it for just those river terminals so if i look at just the the terminals that are along the ohio river in southern indiana and southern illinois, southern illinois uh, basis there has been stronger than the historical average going back to middle of November and, and quite a bit stronger. I mean, we're probably looking at 10, 20, 15, 20, 20 cents or so uh, above the historical average. And really, you know, we've seen a week over week increase of probably at least 15 cents. Uh, and so current basis levels uh, along those export markets for soybeans definitely showing some strength. And again, I think that has to tie back to what you were talking about with exports. Yeah, it sure looks like it. That's a pretty impressive basis chart in terms of the, particularly when you look at the improvement relative to last fall when oh, the yeah. river was was uh, not very friendly with respect to export shipments. I mean, the dramatic change there. I'm looking uh, at that total change is uh, what, about a dollar and a quarter yeah. in terms of basis. Wow, that's almost, well, I'm going to say, you said historic yeah. uh, earlier. I, I, that's got to be historic over that time frame. I can't imagine. Uh, I don't have no recollection of a year where we saw that kind of improvement. Yeah. And then the last thing here to look at from a basis perspective is looking at what's happening happening at Indiana soybean processors. So again, I'm just averaging all the processors into kind of one index of soybean processor basis. And again, the, the pattern is very similar to kind of what we've talked about with everything else. Very weak basis in the fall. Uh, that improved and it actually improved again um, strong uh, above the historical average but as opposed to what we've seen kind of at those river markets with uh, kind of some some positivity and some strength on kind of export demand that processor basis is kind of been tailing off and is at or maybe even below the historical average in, in recent weeks and so that'll be something to pay attention to as we move forward is kind of what the margins are at those processors and what the basis is going to do from the processor point of view because anytime we talk about basis you know we're talking about local demand so what's going on locally around those processors but we're also talking a lot of times about you know competition between the river and inland terminals whether it's ethanol versus the river for corn or whether it's these processors versus the river for soybeans and so it's always interesting each year to pay attention to uh, which way we're, we're pulling uh, on, on those basis numbers um, whether it's kind of the export demand or whether that is kind of the internal demand for processors or some other end user. So it, we just said earlier that it's risky to do this, but if you look at the last couple of years with these tight carryovers, we've seen some pretty strong soybean processor basis in that late spring and early summer time frame. Yeah, we have. Uh, and so, you know, looking at the data that, that I have here, you know, on average, the last two years, we move out into June and July, you know, soybean basis 40 to 60 to 80 cents uh, over futures prices that time of year. Uh, very strong, but again, going back to our research, uh, those are, you know, June and July are very hard times of, of year to be forecasting what basis is gonna be. And so while those might be like good thresholds to kind of put into uh, a scenario analysis plan or some sort of, you know, um, uh, sensitivity analysis of what it could be, you know, those are certainly not my forecasts, right? And as we move closer and we get more information, right, we might want to look a little more closely at those. But as we sit here today, uh, you know, you you don't want to be using those as your, okay, well, this is where basis is going to be this summer because uh, it's just the volatility. And again, it can swing very quickly uh, on on information that we get as, as the year moves on. So thinking back to your comment earlier about a portfolio of marketing uh, strategies, I guess. If you do decide to try and capture some of that or hang on for that, just remember, you don't want to do that with 100% of your crop. You want to do it with a, with a, a portion. You can decide what portion, but because um, there is definitely a possibility it's going to happen, but it's, there's certainly nothing guaranteed that we're going to see that kind of strength, sure. even though even though the carryovers are tight. That's right. And, and again, that's one piece of information that may help uh, folks make that decision. Uh, but, you know, each, each farm is different, and I, Michael could speak to, you know, your 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 liquidity position and, and your ability to bear that risk is going to vary from farm to farm. And so for some farms, that might be a strategy where you could allocate a little more to that. And for other farms, that might just not be a risk that you need to take at all, right? And so you got to decide for yourself. 
So I uh, just want to close out again, shifting our attention to new crop opportunities. Again, we've kind of been pointing to this shifting tide as far as kind of what's going on in terms of farm incomes coming off a couple of really good years and moving into a year where it looks like things aren't going to be as strong as they have been. So paying attention to what's going on uh, in terms of new crop prices and what the opportunities are there uh, and, and thinking about, you know, whether it's, it's uh, a place where you want to maybe make some decisions and make some moves again. Same same thing here. It's a portfolio. I'm not recommending anybody price 100% of their 23 bushels, but be thinking about, is this a time where I want to mar start making some incremental sales? So uh, looking at November 23 soybean futures as of today, again, got a nice bump off of the report yesterday. We're up back up to $13.91. Uh, again, using the crop basis tool, I looked at central Indiana. I've got a... Um, uh, Fall delivery, fall 23 delivery basis bid of 40 cents under that futures price. <coughs> Excuse me, and that puts you <clears throat> at a cash price <clears throat> for delivery in the fall of 23 of $13.51. <clears throat> I believe, Michael, on your average productivity soil, <clears throat> you've got a uh, uh, break even of 1320 ish. 1320. 1320. So, again, as opposed to corn, where we were well below Michael's uh, estimated break-even here, the market is giving us an opportunity to potentially be, be locking in prices above our break-even and, you know, 30 cents above our break-even, which is, uh, again, not the margins that maybe we've looked at in the last couple of years, but for 23, that might be a, a pretty favorable margin and something that people want to be paying attention to. Yeah, good point. So we'll talk about those break-evens a little bit more. So you also looked at the price distribution tool for November 23 soybean futures. And it's a little different than the picture we just saw for corn. Yeah, so again, you know, the distribution tool here is looking at kind of the range of possible outcomes for that November 23 soybean futures. You know, what, where could it expire at as we get to November? And again, just using uh, kind of the 25th and 75th percentiles as kind of some benchmarks to kind of keep in mind uh, and, and use maybe in some scenario planning as you're doing some budgeting. Uh, that 25th percentile, we've got $12.40. So again, that's we've got a 25% chance that prices could move from where they are now, right around $14 to $12.40 or below. Again, you adjust that for basis, you're at a cash price of about $12. Uh, much different situation than, than where we are currently with prices. And again, We've talked about there are factors that, that lean both towards prices going down, prices going up. On the soybean side, there's certainly uh, some information that would suggest tight carryovers. There are some opportunities for prices to move upward. So that 75th percentile uh, currently is $15.33. So again, a 25% chance that soybean prices move above $15.33 before expiration. And so again, those are just some, some, some points to kind of keep in mind as you're doing your budgeting and thinking about uh, marketing decisions, you know, uh, both in terms of what the upside potential is if you wanted to wait <clears throat> and, and uh, look for higher prices, but then also what you might be giving up if prices do happen to move lower. So, Michael, you've taken a look at break-evens and uh, you've updated these with some recent estimates of fertilizer and fuel, I know. So, let's talk us about what your break-even prices for rotation corn are in Indiana. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about break-evens and then discuss some of the, the input input costs that we're particularly concerned about, again, in 23. Uh, if you look at break-evens for, for corn, uh, 22 compared to 23, uh, we'll stick with average productivity soil. You're looking at about a 6% increase uh, from 23 to 22. That's still pretty big by historical standards, but it, it's certainly much smaller than the 25% the increase we saw from 21 to 22. And so a break even right around 595 uh, for average productivity, uh, that does not compare favorably to the December futures adjusted for basis, as, as Nathan uh, indicated. On high productivity soil, uh, ground that has 220 bushel corn, uh, which is quite a bit of, of that in Indiana, uh, the break even is, is at 545, uh, and so that compares somewhat favorably uh, to, to the prices we were talking about earlier. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, these break-even prices are, are look like they're not coming down like some people were hoping uh, they were going to in 23. Uh, the three inputs that we're particularly concerned about in 23, uh, first of all, the rising interest rates. Uh, interest rates have climbed 
uh, 4% in the last year, so that's a concern. Fertilizer costs are also a concern. Uh, they're still relatively high. And then herbicide costs. Uh, herbicide costs increased cons uh, quite a bit in 22, and they look like they're going to remain relatively high into 23. Uh, turning to soybeans, uh, as we said, uh, for average productivity soil break-even of 1320, that's about 5% above uh, the 22 break-even. Uh, and, and on high productivity, that break-even goes all the way down to 1225. And so even on that low, on that, uh, that low price scenario that Nathan was talking about, you wouldn't break even, uh, but you would, you would come fairly close on that high productivity. And that just tells us, uh, you know, the market's is, is sending a signal right now that it wants more soybean acres. Uh, it's pretty obvious. Uh, yeah, soybeans are relatively attractive right now uh, compared to corn when you look at these break-evens and compared to expected prices. No big surprise given the difference in the carryover. You know, when I'm sitting at about a 9% carryover, that's corn. Uh, soybeans sitting closer to 5%. And then the export picture being brighter. And the export picture dramatically different between those two. Uh, let's take a look at anhydrous prices a little bit. Uh, anhydrous prices went way up to about $1,500, $1,600 per ton uh, early in 2022. They came back down a little bit, but they're still ho hovering in that $1,250 to $1,300 per ton uh, price. If, uh, if you look at the Iowa and the Illinois uh, production reports coming from USDA AMS, and so uh, and so they're still relatively high uh, compared to what we were, obviously, uh, in, in 2019 and 2020, when anhydrous prices were below $600. Uh, another, another way of looking at this is, is do it in an index form. Uh, and so uh, if I say that the uh, 2013 to 22 is an index of one, uh, how high are the fertilizer prices in, in right now compared to that long run average? Well, anhydrous price is about double uh, that long run average. And, and even though phosphorus and potash prices have come down recently, they're still looking at 1.5 uh, times of that long run average. And so we're still looking at some store historically high fertilizer prices, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, that's dragging down the net return of corn. Uh, one of the things that some people like to look at, and I know, Jim, you don't necessarily encourage people to do this, but the industry, uh, some people in the industry like to look at that soybean to corn price ratio. Don't look at it this year. Uh, that, that's really irrelevant this year because of the, the fertilizer cost situation uh, we have right now. It does not match historical uh, uh, cost structure, and so it's really dangerous to look at that. If you actually looked at that price ratio, it would say corn is favorable, uh, which it's not. Uh, another way of looking at this is looking at uh, a cost per acre. Uh, if you look at uh, average productivity soil, we had a cost per acre uh, for, for fertilizer over $275. That's come down a little bit with a, with, a, with a drop in phosphorus and potash and a slight decline in anhydrous prices, but it's still around $250. Compare that to 2021 uh, when, when, the, when the fertilizer costs, this include NPK and S, uh, was $150 per acre. And so, uh, and so it just seems to be persistently high prices uh, that could be with us at least for a while. Yeah, you know, looking ahead, uh, of course, we had uh, a speaker at Top Farmer here a week ago, Mike Rahm, talk a little bit in detail about the fertilizer markets. And I think his forecast was for the next several years, we're looking at some elevated fertilizer cost across the board. He didn't expect to see the spikes that we saw in 2022, but he thought it was very unlikely that we would see a return to the levels we saw, you know, back in 2019, 2020, right? Yes, and, and and that obviously has it has has implications on break-even prices, but also the relative profitability between corn and soybeans. Uh, one of the ways to kind of get a handle on on how big how big of, of shock uh, that we've seen in fertilizer uh, fertilizer costs and pesticide costs for that matter is to compare total cost per acre and cost shares. Uh, and here, I, I, what I'm doing is looking at cost shares for rotation corn and high productivity land in Indiana. Uh, when you look at the total cost per acre in 2019, I'll try to slow down here because these these are are truly alarming uh, increases in cost per acre. It was about 860 dollars uh, total cost per acre in 2019. Uh, I mean, we thought that was high cost. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, if you look at uh, 2022, uh, it was it was it was eleven eleven hundred $1,175, and so an increase of over $300 per acre uh, in that three-year time period. So a very large uh, increase in total cost. Uh, some of the cost shares uh, from 19 to 22 uh, increased. 
faster than others. In particular, uh, the cost share for fertilizer went from 17% of total cost to 23%. Uh, the cost share for pesticides went from 7% uh, to 10%. And cash rent, even though it was increasing, the cost share actually went down, meaning that cash rent increased uh, at a much slower rate uh, than fertilizer and pesticides. A uh, long run on, on high productivity soil in Indiana, we expect land to, to be about 30% of total cost. Right now, because of the high pesticide and fertilizer cost, it's sitting at 26%. And so even though we don't think land is necessarily a, a cheap resource right now, uh, you know, relative to the increases in fertilizer and pesticides, it hasn't increased all that much. Yeah, and if you think about uh, going forward, again, just we just said, it looks like we're stuck with these elevated cost levels, maybe not quite as high as what we're projecting at the moment, but still very dramatic increases relative to what we've looked at from a historical perspective. And, you know, Nathan, that really kind of changes the risk management perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said earlier, we've just got a lot more dollars wrapped up in getting the crop out there. And that has to change the risk man, risk management mentality in terms of, you know, we've had a couple of years where, again, you, you didn't really have to be very good at risk management. You were able to make money. Um, but we're entering an environment where that might not be the case. And not only that, but not taking the right positions from a risk management perspective could result not just in making less, but maybe losing money, right? And I think that that's something that people have to pay attention to and to really be looking for opportunities to manage that risk, right? Which means putting a price floor in, hopefully a floor that's going to lock in positive margins, uh, but maybe leaving some upside potential, especially where we know that there are some factors pointing to the, the opportunity for prices to move up. So we, we've talked about this previously, Michael, but you know, we, from our perspective, it looks like we're on the cusp of a different environment, right? We've had a very positive, very favorable operating environment from a profitability standpoint. Some, some listeners might argue it wasn't favorable because they look at the cost side alone, but would you look at a profitability standpoint, 21 and 22 were very good years on corn and soybean farms throughout the Corn Belt. As you look ahead these next couple of years, those operating margins are going to be a lot tighter. It seems like we're heading back to uh, more similar to the 2014 to 2019 uh, net return scenario than the 21 and 22. And, and, I, and I think it's important to point out is, is 21 and 22, there were some very special circumstances that led uh, to those high prof, profits and, and those aren't going to stay with us forever. Uh, and, and, so we're, and so we're going to back to, to a more of a more typical perhaps uh, net return long, you know, long term. Yeah, and we've talked about that previously with respect to things like investments, et cetera, pre preserving your working capital, uh, making sure you've got a good buffer, because we do anticipate things being a lot bumpier these next couple of years than what we've experienced the last, uh, last couple of years. So you took a look at the economic projections for planting corn versus soybeans here in the spring of 23, and... No big surprise, Michael. Soybeans are the winner at the moment. Yes, and and this, we've been talking about this the last several months on on this podcast and 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 also on the webinars. But really, the difference in earnings has been bouncing around from twenty five dollar advantage for corn to twenty five dollar advantage for soybeans. Now we're starting to get real. Uh, the 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 advantage of soybeans is 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 greater than fifty dollars. Uh, that's pretty large uh, historically, and and so and so now there's definitely we're seeing that uh, uh, soybeans look like they're going to be more profitable than corn. Uh, will that uh, cause a lot of people to, to navigate away from their corn soybean rotation? No. Uh, but on the margin, it does mean that there will be some people looking at second-year soybeans again this year uh, in the eastern corn belt in particular. And, and perhaps as you move further west, maybe less interest in continuous corn. And so this, this, this definitely has, has implications uh, in this competition uh, for anchorage. Uh, what we have last year for, in terms of soybean acres, Jim, 87.5 million acres, you can make a case where the acreage uh, will be that high or slightly higher uh, this year, given where we're at uh, with respect to soybean soybean returns compared to corn returns. Yeah, and I guess as long as we're talking about uh, the economic environment here the next couple of years, I think one thing to keep in mind is it remains to be seen how this is going to shake out exactly, but the soybean situation is going to continue to be relatively tight. Um, given the interest that there is with respect to development of more and more renewable fuel plants uh, using soybean oil. And it's a lot of interest in that. We don't know exactly how many plants are actually going to be built, what the, what the numbers are going to turn out to be. But uh, even if a small fraction of the plans that are currently outlined actually materialize, 
it's going to continue to keep that soybean oil situation very tight, and in turn, that'll support soybean prices. So it's going to be interesting to see how the soybean versus corn uh, scenario plays out. We saw that big time in that 2007 to roughly 2012 or 13 time frame, except on the flip side, as ethanol was boosting the demand for corn, we could see a scenario that turns that topsy-turvy and and actually winds up pushing uh, much more of a soybean environment, much more of a uh, continuous soybean environment, at least or multi-year soybean environment. Definitely, and 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 for the foreseeable future here, at least at least short term, it looks like there's less downside risk for soybeans and more upside. Uh, how many times do you see that? Uh, you know, for a particular crop, and and so it's it's some exciting times for soybeans coming up. I think. Yeah. So I guess that's we'll kind of conclude on that kind of a bright spot. I think. Uh, um, you've got some net farm income estimates, which maybe is not, not such a bright spot. but <laughs> it, It's not so bright, but I, I think it's important to keep in mind that there's there's so much difference in, in the low price versus the high price scenario. Even so, and even though net farm income for, for 23 does not look as good, uh, anywhere as close to what it was in, in, in 21 and 22, it's not that much below the long run average. And you can paint a picture where uh, things are going to be better, uh, you know, better uh, than, than what I'm, I'm currently projecting. But having said that, uh, I'm, I'm a kind of a downside risk person. I, I'm important to downside risk. You can also paint a picture where things could be back to where we were for, uh, you know, looking at 2014 to 2019, uh, some lower net farm incomes, more in that $50 per acre range uh, versus the 250 that we saw in, 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 in 2022. And so uh, Nathan alluded to this earlier, the importance of looking at scenarios. What does my cash flow look like? What do my marketing strategies look like? under the low price scenario? Uh, what does my strategy look like under a high price scenario? And so use more than one uh, corn and soybean price combination uh, when you're looking at your budgets this year. Yeah, good point. And of course, uh, the way you do this every month on the, on the podcast, Michael, kind of illustrates that because they do bounce around yes, from one do. month to the next, right? So. So I'm going to wrap it up there. That uh, reminder, you can download a, a set of charts that accompany this podcast on our website. And you actually, you can just view them on the website. You don't have to download them. Uh, and of course, the website's purdue.edu slash commercial ag. Uh, and just go to the podcast uh, on the main menu there. Um, it's, I'd encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And so on behalf of Nathan Thompson and Michael Langemeyer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minnert. Thanks for listening.